So if you were here um, last week, we said it was 10 more sleeps to go until Christmas. This week, we are down to three. Who's excited? (laughs) Tough crowd this morning, obviously. You should have heard them in the first service. They were whooping and leaping and... No, actually, actually they weren't. They weren't. Trust me. (laughs) But, you know, last week we were celebrating the Christmas TV adverts, John Lewis in particular. This week, if you're anything like me, we are fed up of the sight of Edgar the Dragon. We've seen it a thousand million times. Last week, I... I said that we could only see one product in that John Lewis Christmas advert, a Waitrose Christmas pudding. But someone said afterwards that actually I was wrong. There was also a carrot for the snowman's nose, the one that Edgar melted. Now, as you know, I hate being wrong, ever. So I said, um, first thing I thought of, how do you know that the carrot was from Waitrose? After all, the filmmakers had to work to a budget, didn't they? Another criticism successfully batted away. In other news this week, we had our uh, Christmas lunch for the church staff team and some of the volunteers who are here during the week. Uh, This is me in my Christmas jumper giving out these secret Santa presents. Now, we were supposed to have Santa himself, but he was too busy, so he sent me as his head elf instead. And as well as presents... And more importantly than presents, we had Christmas crackers. And I love Christmas crackers because of the jokes. I get a whole year's worth of material in one day. This is, uh, this is me again. I've collected up all the jokes from the crackers, and I'm busy selecting the very best ones. And the reason you can see a blank one there is that they were pretty cheap crackers. So I'm obviously not going to get many laughs out of that particular one, but then again, of course, I'm used to that. (laughs) Would you like to hear some of the jokes? I knew you would. (laughs) What do you call a three-legged donkey? I'll do the jokes, if you don't mind. Okay, what part of a clock is always old? The second hand. The second hand? It's quite subtle. Some of you are still not getting it. Um, Here's a good one. Um, What kind of sandals do frogs wear? Open-toed. And I'd like them anyway. And then, last but not least, what do you get if you cross a skeleton with a famous detective? Sherlock Bones. Brilliant, brilliant. And you can look forward to more of those in 2020. But you know, Christmas isn't just about TV adverts and Christmas lunch, and it isn't even about Christmas crackers, important though they obviously are. Christmas is about the Christmas story and the beginning of the Christian story, the beginning of Christianity. Now, one of the things about having a PhD in theology is that you begin to think you know quite a lot about the subject. So I thought that this morning what I would do is to turn my attention to the Christmas story and do a bit of a theological critique. Because it seems to me that no one really thinks about that much anymore. Year after year we get the same old, same old with Mary and Joseph and the donkey and the innkeeper and the shepherds and the wise men and all that stuff. And that's fine. 
Arguably, it's a bit late to change any of it now. But it does seem to me that there are lessons to be learned. With the benefit of hindsight, if I was appointed as a special advisor to heaven, I've got a few suggestions that I think would have made the Christmas story far more successful. Now, I ran my ideas past Lynn, as I always do, and she said it sounded more like Alan Partridge than the Archbishop of Canterbury, (laughs) which obviously I took to be a compliment. Because if I can do for church what Alan Partridge has done for radio and television, that would be quite a legacy, wouldn't you agree? And Lynn also said that I should warn everyone in advance that today's talk is going to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. She said that it needed a disclaimer. So please don't take anything that I say out of context this morning, will you? I know that no Christian would ever take anything out of context, (laughs) especially a Bible verse. But please just remember the wise words of Michel Dubois from Allo Allo. Listen very carefully, I shall say this only once. So the title of today's talk is How Not to Found a New Religion, with a subtitle how correcting a few simple errors would have made the Christmas story far more successful, in my humble opinion. So let's start with the timing of the whole thing. Now they say that timing is the secret of a good joke. Not that I've ever let that get in my way. (laughs) But you know, really, to start a new religion in the first century was not great timing. I mean, if God had chosen the 21st century instead, we could have videoed it, put it on the internet and live-streamed everything, rather than having to rely on eyewitnesses to what happened. People who knew Jesus personally having to tell people in person by word of mouth. How inefficient is that? I suppose that's probably why Jesus met with so many people after his resurrection so that they would go into all of the world and talk about it as eyewitnesses to what they'd personally seen and experienced. On one occasion, the Bible tells us that there were 500 people there in one place. And it's probably why Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection, talking with them and teaching them and having meals with them. Another advantage, if Jesus had come now, would be that we'd have video evidence. We wouldn't need faith. Everybody would automatically just believe in him, wouldn't they? Obviously they would. After all, video can't be faked, can it? So no one would ever say that the story of Jesus must be fake news, in spite of all the evidence. I mean, that sort of thing doesn't happen nowadays, does it? So point number one, the timing was definitely off a bit. Point number two, we definitely need to upgrade some of the characters in that original Christmas story. And where better to begin than with the shepherds? Now, when you think shepherds, it's easy to think farmers, landed gentry the great and the good from the shires. But it wasn't quite like that in the first century because being a shepherd was one of the worst jobs going. Uh, Accounts... (laughs) 
that's one of them. Accounts from the time say that it was right down there with being a dung sweeper, sweeping up after the horses. And the reason that the shepherds were living out in the fields at night is because they lived with the sheep for weeks at a time. They had to, to protect them from thieves and wild animals. So they slept in their clothes for weeks on end up in the hills with no showers and no toilets. So they smelled pretty bad. And also shepherds had a reputation for being dishonest. People said you should never buy wool or lamb from them because you'd have to assume it had been stolen. They were also looked down on by the religious people because they had to work on the Sabbath. So they never went to synagogue. And they weren't allowed to give evidence in court because no one ever believed a word that a shepherd said. Funny people for God to choose to be the first witnesses to the birth of his son. Now, I'm not saying that God made a bad call here. I mean, maybe there was a mix-up by the angel Gabriel. But given that background, you can imagine why the shepherds were terrified when they saw that angel. They assumed it was bad news, God's judgment on them. So you can also imagine how overjoyed they were when it wasn't that at all. That's why it says in the story, they were amazed. The people that no one else would choose have been chosen by God. The people that no one else would believe were believed in by God. So no wonder that straight away they left their sheep to go to Bethlehem to see what God was doing, even though they would almost certainly have been sacked for doing that. So if I was founding a new religion now, I would be announcing it through decent, respectable people like church pastors and politicians. We can't let God's reputation be ruined by associating himself with people like shepherds. In fact, it's a bit like another strange decision, which was to make a group of women the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Because in those days, women weren't allowed to give evidence in court either. But we'll save that story for Easter. And that takes us on to point number three. I'm afraid we have to get rid of the wise men. Because there is more than a hint of liberalism in the Magi being included in the story. Even though that Carol says, we three kings of Orient are, they were not kings. They were actually mystics, Persian astrologers. Shock, horror. Mystic megs. The word magi comes from the same root as our word for magician. Now they were what we would call spiritual people. They were people looking for God. But until then they'd been looking in all the wrong places. So why God would come to them and include them in the story when they didn't even believe the right things is anyone's guess. Folks, this is not the best way to start a new religion in which believing all the right things is very important. I mean, everyone knows that God is an evangelical. Every evangelical knows that God is an evangelical. Surely. Based on God reaching out to shepherds and astrologers, you'd think that he was reaching out to everyone, whoever they were, 
Anyone and everyone who really wanted to find him and know him. You might even think that that's what Christmas was all about. And that leads on to what was probably the greatest mistake of all. The one thing you do not do if you're founding a new religion. You do not have God become personally involved in this world. I mean, everyone knows that God is supernatural. He's in another realm entirely. He is aloof and distant, up there somewhere. All good religious people know that you shouldn't bring God down to our level, that the spiritual world and the physical world do not mix. So in my new religion, we're not going to make the same mistakes that Christianity did with Jesus, the Son of God, coming into this world to be born as one of us, as a real human being, we are going to keep an appropriate and respectful distance between God and this world. Okay, now I will concede that on paper there are a few advantages. If you're the kind of God who wants to identify with us and what human life feels like, a God who suffers with us, a God who knows what it's like to be human as we are. A God to whom no one can ever say, because no one need ever say, you wouldn't know what it's like to be me. Now there were so many unfortunate doctrinal consequences that flow from God having done it that way. One is that it's really hard for us to figure out how Jesus can be both God and man in one person how he can be just like us, except without sin. And it's really hard for us to understand how Jesus dying on a cross and being raised from the dead, defeating death, how all of that somehow gave us the chance to know God personally and to be forgiven for everything that separates us from him. We would not have these challenges, folks, if God had done what gods are supposed to do which is to be different and other and stayed up there. I mean, why come and get involved in this world at all? Gods are supposed to be aloof and distant and unknowable. They're not supposed to get involved in the mess of our lives. So in my new religion, we're going to go back to basics, back to a few home truths. You see, churches like the vineyard have become way too soft. They've read way too much in the Bible about God's love and kindness and mercy and welcome. That God loves us as we are and invites us to come to him as we are. That God wants us to know him personally as a loving heavenly father. And they've believed it. They've taken it at face value. They've read way too much into those stories of the shepherds and the wise men that through Jesus, God was reaching out to ordinary people who were doing the wrong things and believing the wrong things. A God who came to us as we are. And they've read too much of those, into those stories of Jesus reaching out to the poor and the sick and the marginalised and the prostitutes and everyone else who society looked down on. And foolishly, they believe that all of that is still true of Jesus today. 
they think they've found God's unconditional love to be true in their own experience. So they want to share it with everyone they can. Misleading people into believing that if they invite Jesus into their lives, they too can experience his love and know him personally. So in my new religion, we're going to go back to what traditional religion is all about. We're going to get rid of all that personal stuff, all that relational stuff, that impertinent and presumptuous idea that through Jesus, anyone can know God personally. We're going to focus on the things we're against, not the things we're for. We're going to focus on being people who make traditional religion what it is. We need to get rid of all of that grace of God stuff, that God is a God of love, that he first loved us and that he loves us unconditionally, that he wants a relationship with us in which we then love him in return. In my reworking of Christianity, we're going back to the traditional idea of God as an angry old man sitting on a throne in heaven, barking out instructions through religious people who are just as angry as he is. A God who's disappointed with us all the time and never happy. A God who can't wait to send us to hell, who wants us to get what we deserve. Instead of this ridiculous idea in Christianity that Jesus came into this world to give us what we don't deserve, a Jesus who invites anyone and everyone to be adopted into his family and to share in eternal life. A God who invites us to pray to a God that we can speak to as our Father. Now I know the Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, but in our new religion we're going to get rid of the grace bit and just focus exclusively on the truth. We're going to scare people into heaven, not love them into heaven. We're going to stop quoting those Bible verses, those unqualified promises that sound way too much like good news. That to all who received him, to all who believed him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. So now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are members of God's family. How ridiculous that people should believe all that and take all that at face value as if it was really true. So that's my hatchet job on the original Christmas story, all done and dusted. I hope you found that helpful. See, the problem is the way that that original Christmas story came together had all the potential to give traditional religion a bad name, which I hope that I've corrected this morning. <laughs> if you still want to believe it, then please go ahead. But maybe you're thinking the very things that make it so unbelievable that God would do that, that God would come and be born into this world in the person of his son, just because he loves us, just because he loves you and he loves me. Maybe the very things that make it so unbelievable are actually the things that make it so true. <laughs>